Well, I'm glad that you're here and glad that we have the opportunity to spend some time together around the Word of God and uh, talking about what we're covering in Sunday School for February the 7th of 2021. We have been going through some questions and answers out of the New City Catechism. Appreciate some of the feedback that I've received from uh, teachers who are enjoying it and uh, also people in the class who are enjoying it. And uh, the question we're going to ask today, a very important one, very good question. What does the law of God require? What does the law of God require? I was listening to John MacArthur the other day, and um, he said something that uh, was just a reminder that every religion in the world falls into one or two categories. It's either works, the works of the flesh, keeping of the law, keeping of rules and regulations in order to earn or merit heaven, or it falls into the category of grace. And grace is, of course, the unearned and undeserved favor of God. And so you're going to either have something that teaches you, here's how you, um, I don't know, maybe would say climb the ladder to get to heaven. This is how you gain merit or points with God. This is how you earn your salvation by your works, or this is how it is given to you simply out of the love and grace and the mercy of God. And um, boy, is that ever true. You uh, find a lot of different religions that teach you keep this code of ethics and uh, how much or how well, should I say, do I have to keep this code of ethics? You know, for a lot of them, it boils down to this. If you can get 51%, then you're good and you'll go into heaven. Uh, Islam, for example, like some others, and in fact, if you were just to talk to the man on the street, I think a lot of people believe this. They think that when we stand before God, our good deeds and our bad deeds are going to be put upon a scale, and uh, one of them is going to be heavier than the other. And as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're okay. But if your bad deeds, you know, are heavier, well then, of course, you're in trouble. And uh, the Pharisees, even, <clears throat> in the days of Jesus, kind of had the idea that if I can achieve 51% or more, and they would go for the more, of course, because they like to be self-righteous, then uh, they would be okay. I've kept the law. I've kept nearly all of the law. And uh, then they would look down upon people that, you know, of course, didn't keep the law to the degree that they did. And so uh, that, that gives us um, pause to go, is that accurate? Or if it's not 51%, then how much is it? Uh, maybe there would be some Pharisees, and I think maybe the Apostle Paul, before he was saved, he might fall into this category where he would say, now 51% is not quite enough, but maybe, what is it, 60, 70, 80% of the law? In fact, um, Paul talks about his past, and he talks about being, as touching the law, blameless. And he kind of, um, I think it's in 
the book of Philippians, he goes through a list of the commandments that he had kept. And you know what one, what, which one tripped him up? It was the 10th, thou shalt not covet. He was able to keep himself from stealing. He was able to restrain himself from adultery and murder and those type of things. Uh, but of course, when you think about what Jesus said, nobody's really guilt-free in those areas because of the motives and desires of our heart, right? And um, no one has really ever loved God with everything that he's got. No one has ever really had a time in their life where there were no other gods and nothing else would be worshiped or the name of the Lord would not be used in vain or any of those things. Very difficult to say I've kept those 100% of the time. And yet Paul thought that he had because he had followed the rules, followed the regulations, and outwardly it would appear that he was a, you know, stand-up guy, that he was completely right with God and he had done all of those things, which always seems to kind of lead us to this performance-based, outward-based, covering the heart, covering the motive, but the outer part of us, you know, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. Enough so that other people might say, well, you're, you know, you've got it all covered. You're a good person. Um, we've been to funerals where somebody gets up in front of the congregation and talks about what a good person the deceased is. Um, I watched one time when I was at Tuttle, I did a funeral for someone that I didn't know, and um, I preached the gospel. And as soon as I got through, there were some people from the Masonic Lodge that came up and they started doing these rituals uh, to and over and around the body, commending to the great architect of the universe, this person's soul because of all of the good works that they had performed. And uh, so we, we look at all of this stuff and we see that people are sometimes like Paul was before he was saved, fooling themselves because their outward appearance looks pretty good. But when you examine the heart, and this is why that last commandment, thou shalt not covet, came in, there were a lot of those things that Paul as a Pharisee wouldn't do, but he wanted to. There were a lot of those things he wouldn't dare be seen or be caught doing them, but he couldn't help thinking about those kind of things. And that's what Jesus talked to us about when he said, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, that second look, I guess we would say, the, the look that's on purpose, the look that's not just the casual noticing of someone, but the intentional look, Jesus said you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, it may not look like you've committed adultery, and everyone may think that you are innocent of it, everyone except the one that sees the heart. You remember what God said to the prophet Samuel when Samuel was looking for the next king of Israel in Jesse's house. Man looks on the outward appearance 
God looks upon the heart. And I think that whenever we talk about the law of God and whether we are righteous, whether we are going to uh, make it to heaven or not, you have to take in this um, idea of motive. You have to take in this idea of desire. What is going on in the hidden part of man that no one sees except God? Well, what does the law of God require? Now, the Bible is really clear that if you are guilty in one part of the law, then you're guilty of all of the law. And um, the Bible says things like, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven also is perfect. Well, there's not a one of us that would ever claim to be perfect. In, fi in fact, we find great comfort in kind of backing off and saying and hiding behind the statement, well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. And uh, we all make mistakes, and that is true. But we're not talking about just simply making a mistake here. We're not simply talking about, you know, my pencil needs an eraser just like yours. We're talking about sin. We're talking about intentionally violating the law of God to do what we want to do, regardless of what God thinks. We're like Adam and we're like Eve, who knew exactly what they were doing, and they knew exactly what the command was concerning the fruit that the serpent offered. They knew exactly what they were doing and walked into it uh, with their eyes wide open. At least Adam did. At least Adam did. Eve may have been uh, deceived, but um, even on that, she knew what the command was, right? And Adam definitely knew and he made a choice <clears throat> to go along with it, probably because Eve had, and he didn't want to lose Eve, and he loved Eve more than he loved God. So when we think about these intentional things that we do to violate the law of God, well, what does the law of God require? 51% most of the time, 80% of the time, are there certain laws that maybe if we don't break them, we're, we're okay? And certain laws that if we do break them, well, nobody's perfect. It's not that big a deal. What does it require? Well, here's the answer according to the New City Catechism. Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You ever done that? And love our neighbor as ourselves. You ever done that? Have you done it perpetually? What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. Now that uh, summary statement there, what God forbids should never be done, not just most of the time, not just the majority of times, never be done, and that which God commands should, notice that word, always be done. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 37 through 40, Jesus said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. I'm emphasizing that on purpose. And with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Hang all the law and the prophets. What did he mean by that? He meant that if you took the summation of everything in the Ten Commandments and everything that the prophets taught, it basically would boil down to this. You love God with everything you've got and you love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. And uh, that's really what everything is. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, what is it, the first four of them uh, relate to God and the rest of them relate to man? In other words, loving God and loving your neighbor. That's the basis of what the law of God teaches. And the law of God does not teach just do that whenever you feel like it or do it when it's convenient or here's the worst part of it, do it when they deserve it. You know, it's amazing how we always seem to want grace and mercy when it comes to us and our failures and our law-breaking and our mistakes and our sin. But when it comes to other people's, we want justice, don't we? We want them to pay. We want them to know what they've done. We want them to feel what they have done to us. Can you imagine how many times you have hurt the heart of God by a thought, by a motive, by a desire, by something that has never been seen or known by anyone else except it is like an arrow going into the very heart of God because he created you and I'm assuming I'm speaking to Christians. He sent his son to die on the cross and bear the penalty for your sin in your place. And yet you would dare indulge yourself in any kind of thought, any kind of desire, any kind of fantasy, any kind of whatever you want to call it that may never be acted on, but it's what you really want and what you really are, because the scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so many times we find ourselves, even as children of God, being those stubborn and rebellious children of God, and not the obedient and submissive children of God. And then we want to pass it off because, well, I've never really done it, or I had one person say to me one time, you ready for this? This person claimed to be a Christ follower, a lover of God. Well, if thinking it is as bad as doing it, might as well do it. Well, to think that we would act that way toward the God who loves us, the God who gave us salvation, the God who gives us life, the God who is the author of everything that we are and everything that we experience. In him we live and breathe and have our being, Paul said. 
To think that we would act that way toward him tells us a lot about ourselves. And this is why we need grace. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And let's just be honest, we don't fall a little bit short of the glory of God. We fall way short of the glory of God. So let's talk about this because the law of God is what brings us to the point of seeing ourselves as sinners in need of a savior, as people who need grace, not just a a boost, not just a little help to kind of get past the finish line. We realize that being dead in trespasses and sins is really a big, big deal. And the idea of total depravity is probably better stated total inability, inability to please God, to obey God, or to atone for our own sins. Think about this. Number one, this is something that is individual and personal. Uh, Why would I take that and uh, make that the first point? Because Jesus uses the words, you shall, you shall, not they shall, not somebody shall, but you shall. And it's far too easy to point out all of the problems, you know, even sometimes in a marriage. It's never our fault, really. It's her fault. It's his fault. If they would just act right, if they would just do right, then obviously we're such good people, we would do it as well. If everybody else in society would just act right, if they would just think right, if they would just do right, then so would we. So would we. It's everybody else's fault, except Jesus is not going to let us get away with that. This is in spite of society, in spite of what others do, even in your own household, even in the church. It means even if you stand alone, you still do what's right. You still obey God. This is a you shall, not they shall. And this is to the point of even giving up your life. Think about all the people that have died for causes. Think about all the people that have been martyred for different situations, people that have been assassinated. Maybe they were a king. Maybe they were a prime minister, president, leader of a movement. And yet they were willing to give their life for what they believed, to die in that. And we make statues to them. We give them holidays, don't we? And uh, we talk about who they are and how they lived and how they acted. Well, how many Christians do you know that would be willing to give their life for Jesus Christ? You know, um, when you think about how easy we have it in America and most of Western society, you think about how tough it was to be a Christian in the first century. You think about all the people that wanted to wipe out Christianity, and uh, from a human standpoint, you wonder why they weren't able to do it. 
Why couldn't they squelch this movement? Why couldn't they put a stop to this? After all, there were not a lot of powerful people that were Christians in the early days. And uh, there was not, you know, the kind of thing to where um, with wealth and politics and all of that kind of thing that Christians, you know, got moving and no one could stop them. It wasn't like that at all, was it? Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, this is a supernatural movement. And that's why it is uh, still around today. And think of all of the people who were willing to die, willing to give their life, willing to suffer torture and agony, all for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then you think about what it takes to stop us, to derail us. You know, uh, just go through your mind. How many people have quit on church and quit on God simply because somebody didn't speak to them the last time they were at church? How many people have quit on God and quit on church and um, abandoned everything simply because they didn't get their way and maybe a decision that was made at the church. And we could go on and on with the pettiness that people have. And uh, if Christianity had been dependent upon people, especially Americans, I don't know that it would have survived. I don't know that it would have lasted this long. But thank God, Christianity is a supernatural uh, event. It's a supernatural movement, I guess we should say. And God is behind it. And God is preserving his church in spite of her persecutions and in spite of her weaknesses, because this is an individual and personal thing. Notice, secondly, that it is to be motivated by love. Um, the Bible talks about loving God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And it talks about loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. This is about not simply performance. This is not just simply checking the boxes, but it is actually about doing what we do and doing it out of love. Have you uh, thought about that? You know, sometimes I think when it comes to uh, giving, People say, well, I'm going to get out my calculator and I'm going to figure out my tithe, my 10%. No more, no less. And they don't really do it out of love. They don't really do it out of gratefulness. They don't really do it because they are simply saying to the Lord, you've done so much for me. This is the least I can do for you. They do it grudgingly. They do it of necessity and they do it with great resentment. Um, I think I've told you before, I had a guy uh, here at Graceway that came up to me and he said, you know, if I didn't tithe, I could have a boat. And sometimes we're kind of like that. We don't really do it because we love God. We do it because we feel like it is a requirement. We feel like that there is a penalty. We feel like we'll suffer the consequences. Well, if you take that, that means you are acting more like a toddler than you are an adult. 
You see, when you were a toddler, your parents would tell you to do something and you would ignore it until you felt the sting of the discipline, the threat of whatever might be coming your way. If you don't get up right now and pick up those toys, young lady, you're going to go take a nap right now. And you're not going to play. You're not going to watch TV or anything. And so the kid grudgingly gets up and does it. It's not out of love. It's not out of gratefulness or anything like that. They do it just because you're bigger than they are. And how effective do you think Christianity is going to be if all we do is try to keep outwardly laws, rules, and regulations simply because we're afraid of what might happen to us instead of doing it out of a tremendous love for God? Now, when you grow up, you may do some things for your parents simply because you love them. You want to help them. You want to serve them. You're appreciative for everything they have done for you. Big difference between maturity and immaturity. This is about doing it um, and doing it out of love. And um, think about 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, you might want to even look sometime at the characteristics of love that are listed in there. And if we loved God and others like that, what would change? They'll know we are Christians by our love, those kind of things. Well, a lot probably would. John chapter 15, verse 1 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus is a supreme example of that. And he doesn't need just a bunch of gripey, snot-nosed rule followers who do things just because they have to. What he needs are mature soldiers who love God, who love the cause, patriots, we might say, who take up arms and take up the ar uh, armor and follow Christ, and they will pay any price and go to any length, even to the point of death, simply because they love Jesus more than they love their own lives. Number three, notice here that he gives a standard how much are we supposed to do this? Notice the standard is all. All. How many times did he say that? All that is commanded is to be done. It's to be done all of the time. And it's to be with an unwavering intensity. Unwavering in intensity. You know those times when we come and we don't feel like singing and we barely do. And then those times we really feel it and we sing with all of our strength. You know how we waver on those kind of things. You know how those times come when you pray and you really feel it and your heart is in it. And then other times it's just a dull, dead uh, repetition of empty words. Jesus said that it's to be done all of the time with unwavering intensity perfection. Be ye perfect. And then number four, I'm calling this the mirror. You see, the law of God is like a mirror. You go up to a mirror and you can tell that your hair is messed up. Mine gets down in my eyes all the time. And um, you can tell if your face is clean or 
dirty. You can tell if you need a shave or not. You look at all of that in the mirror, don't you? Ladies, you may check your makeup, those kind of things. But you would never use the mirror to fix your makeup. You would never use the mirror to wash your face or to comb your hair because it's incapable of doing anything to fix the problem. It reveals a problem, but it cannot fix the problem. Now, it can be a tool in fixing it. I mean, if you take your comb and comb your hair, uh, you use the mirror, but the mirror didn't fix your hair. The comb did, didn't it? And so uh, the law of God is more like a mirror than it is anything else. None of us can keep the law of God. We've already broken it. We've already sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we don't live up to the standard there. And so uh, Jesus made this statement on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So how am I doing in obeying the Ten Commandments? How am I doing in obeying what um, the various prophets had to say about the way God's people are, about, uh, are, are supposed to live? Well, think about this. The law can reveal sin, but it cannot atone. It can't make things right. The law... Um, the law of love keeps you from um, mistreating your neighbor, for example. You know, that's a New Testament concept. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Oh, well, I've had affection toward other people. I've been kind toward other people. Well, let's go on and see what Paul meant. Verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so think about it. What Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, and what the law demands is this. God who created us, God who made us, God who sustains us, should be loved, should be obeyed, both positive and negative, all the time and from the heart. In other words, our love for God and others is to be real, felt, heartfelt, we might say, and reasonable. Paul tells us we ought to think about these kind of things because every problem in society we can mark down as solved if we would only love God with everything we've got. We wouldn't disobey him. We wouldn't hurt other people. And every other problem, human problems, would be solved if we simply followed the golden rule, and did unto others as we would have them do unto us. Or in other words, if we would just love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It's amazing how we can see the sin in other people's lives, and we can't see it when we do the exact same thing. So what does the law require? Perfection, absolute obedience. 100% of the law 
100% of the time. And God is even so kind to boil it down to just two things. Love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how are you doing on that? And that brings us to the point of seeing how far we fall short of the glory of God, which takes us to Jesus, who fulfilled all of the law all of the time, died on the cross as the innocent one in the place of guilty ones like me and like you, so that we could receive the free gift of eternal life, not by the keeping of the law, but by the grace of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Think on these things. There's some questions underneath there that you can um, answer and uh, get ready for a great time together of discussion as we think about what does God require? What does the law require of us? And what has God done about that for us and in our place? Thank you for your time. And I pray that the Lord blesses you and that this lesson enriches your life for the glory of God.